Hello, I'm Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On today's episode, containing multitudes, what is the nature of the truth? We live in an age of fake news and social media, propaganda and conspiracy theory. From politics to pandemic, science to history, our public debates are increasingly divided between alternative versions of the world around us. In such febrile times, how can we go about distinguishing true from false, fact from fiction? Dermot Ferreter is Professor of Modern Irish History at University College Dublin and a regular columnist with the Irish Times. His work on 20th century Ireland has revised many myths about our recent past in books about Eamon de Valera, the revolutionary decade, sex and religion, and most recently a history of our offshore islands. At the National Gallery of Ireland, Dermot spoke with Dr David Kenny, Assistant Professor of Law at Trinity College Dublin, where they discussed history, law, and different ways of discovering the truth. I'm here today with Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern Irish History at University College Dublin. And my name is David Kenny, and I'm an Associate Professor of Law at Trinity College Dublin. Dermot, we're going to have a short conversation about truth. And I think that both of our disciplines, law and history, are trying to provide truths or answers for society in some way. And we might go about it with different tools, and we might have different priorities, and we might even provide different truths at the time. But we have you know, that in common. And you've been researching and teaching history for, you know, 30 years at this stage, and often in periods where history was contested in the news, there was clashes about the correct interpretation and meaning of historical events. From that experience, what does history bring in terms of truth and meaning, do you think? Yeah, you're right to talk about current affairs because I was very conscious, I suppose, from the late 1980s into the early 1990s that there was this ongoing clash between current affairs and and history. They kept meeting each other. Uh, And I came to study history at a time when there was an avalanche of new information coming into the public domain and new source material coming into the public domain. A great time uh, to be a historian. Um, I remember reading an article by the Cork writer Sean O'Feilein when I started studying history in UCD. And he had started the Bell magazine way back in 1940. And he set the mission of the magazine to do something different, to find new voices. And he said he was searching for individual bits of veracity amidst the dust heaps of convention. And I thought to myself, that'd be a great mission statement for a historian, you know, and it approximated, I suppose, to um, the idea that there were a younger generation of historians seeking to uh, to, to look for those individual bits of, of veracity mm. uh, and to move beyond perhaps the uh, the high political narratives and, and to look for social experiences uh, and to look for voices that had often been marginalised. Uh, and that coincided then, of course, with this decade of revelations from the 1990s onwards, the onslaught uh, of, of memories, of personal testimonies, of the power uh, of those personal testimonies. But it raised a very difficult question about what constituted the truth. Mm. What constitutes evidence? Where do you find it? Uh, Who leaves it behind? How is it generated? How do you mediate and contextualize it? Can you trust it? Do you have to be skeptical about all of your sources? And you do in many ways, not in a cynical way, but you have to question constantly where it is coming from. And the very first lecturing job uh, I had in UCD, I was 24, I was a junior lecturer. And the first course I taught taught was Ireland in the 20th century. And in that class, there were a number of mature students, very mature students in their late 60s and early 70s. And at the beginning, one of them said to me, uh, no disrespect intended, which wasn't true. uh, But anyway, he said, what do you know about the 20th century? I've lived through most of it, he said. I remember it. 
And I said, yes, and I've researched a lot of it, and it's going to be interesting to see how we combine uh, our two different experiences. And I can still see him. He used to sit up on the front row, uh, and occasionally during a lecture, if you'd be in full flight, he'd nod in agreement. Other times he would shake his head in disgust, you know, that's not how I remember it. So it just raised that question, of course, of, you know, whose truth is it? Whose experience is it? You're almost awaiting a verdict in that way. Is training young historians then trying to teach them to be sceptical but not cynical, to yes. take a sceptical eye to what the truth is, to always look at the verification criteria that you're trying to instill in them, but without that sort of sense of cynicism, with a belief that there is something to look for? And what sort of purpose do you suggest they bring to that endeavour? What should they go into it with in terms of their, the spirit of it? Part of it is about being empathetic to context. It's not about them believing one version over another. It's not about them bringing a kind of a suffocating judgmentalism uh, to the questions that they're looking at or the voices uh, that they are discovering or the, or, or the documents that they are um, pursuing. Uh, it's about them treating evidence as evidence needs to be treated with great care, with considerable thought, uh, to do it thoroughly, uh, to try and, insofar as is possible, to, to exhaust the different avenues of exploration or the different possibilities of, of where sources might lie. And again, we've been very lucky uh, in what we've been able uh, to uh, mediate in, in recent decades because, you know, we had archives legislation, for example, from 1986, which was the National Archives Act, which meant by the, by the early 1990s when that's in operation, you could go in and you could get some insight into how policymakers were thinking or how they were formulating, formulating ideas and legislation. That's one kind uh, of... of reservoir of source material. Um, but then you also have to look at how does that impact on people? If we can say that the archival documents can tell us what happened or how ideas were formulated or policies were formulated, what did it then feel like uh, for people who were uh, to be affected by, by that kind of policy? So trying to get people to think um, about how it trickles downwards. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember researching the history of sexuality uh, in Ireland, which is a real challenge because your sources tend to be about when things went wrong. You know, it's about uh, criminality. You go to the court records. Um, trying to find accounts of the, the joys of sex, uh, very, very different thing altogether. So you have to be conscious and, and communicate that, that to students about certain issues or certain sources that we come to rely on very heavily are not necessarily representative. And we had, for example, um, in 2003, the release of the Bureau of Military History witness statements, which were taken by veterans of the Irish Revolutionary Period in the 1940s and the 1950s. Now, the director of the Bureau of Military History was conscious that they needed to get these people before it was too late to get their versions, their truths, if you like, or their record of their involvement. And then it was locked up so that it wouldn't become current affairs, so that it would stay in the realm of history. Mm. But the director of the Bureau identified one of the main problems, failing memory. You were asking men and women in the 40s and the 50s to remember things that had happened 25 or 30 years previously. And you do have to remind students of history, these are not definitive. They are not the truth. You know, they are versions uh, of events and of individual uh, experiences. And like, we, we're all engaged uh, in that. It's not just true of, of, of history, uh, but also how fiction writers uh, might use um, anecdotes that then become something else. Julian Barnes has written about this very effectively in the... Um, um, the Booker Prize winning novel, uh, The Sense of an Ending. Mm. You know, that there are anecdotes that become approximate memories that time then deforms into certainties. Yeah. 
So how do you come away with, with the impression uh, of those events? You know, how reliable are they? Uh, and then there are others like Blake Morrison, an English uh, novelist who discovered the tranche of his, his parents' letters from the 1940s. Mm. Um, and as far as he were concerned, they were the antidote to his mother's suppressed memory because his mother, Agnes O'Shea, came from Kerry, the 19th of 20th, 20 children. She reinvented herself in England as a doctor, as an eminently respectable middle-class woman. She never made any reference to her Kerry background because it didn't fit her reinvention. But then Blake, as the son, found these uh, letters and he published them mm. uh, in his novel, Things My Mother Never Told Me. And as he said himself, it was a shit's trick. Mm. It was transgressive. These were never meant for public consumption. And that's the other interesting aspect of this. There are things that are recorded, there are memories that are not meant for public consumption. And we're in a very privileged position sometimes when a window is opened onto that material for us and we have to exercise that privilege with considerable sensitivity and responsibility. Yes, and presumably caution about if documents weren't intended for public consumption and people didn't think they were reading something into the historical record, they might have written it differently. Absolutely. And as Blake Morrison was able to acknowledge, uh, he, as a novelist, couldn't resist this material. Yeah. Uh, it was just so meaty. Yeah. Uh, but he was always very conscious that this was some form of a betrayal. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because in the law, I think, again, we are obsessed with a process for finding a truth. I mean, so much of what we do in the law is verification criteria, things like standards of proof, rules for witnesses, what's good evidence. But much like you're saying with certain historical documents, we have to remember that the version of the truth the law finds is not the truth. It's a legal truth and it works for a legal process. But behind every kind of legal story where we've excluded all sorts of evidence because it wasn't the right kind or it comes from a problematic source or we can't corroborate in the right way. There's a human story that may be very different. And I think the problem often comes when we mistake a legal truth which exists really for a practical purpose because perhaps, you know, in a slightly different way, laws very immediately about problem solving. Someone's coming in for an answer to a question. It has to be guilty or not guilty, liable or not liable. There's no legal case that concludes with, we have no idea, yeah. off you go. We need an answer at the end of the day. And because of that reductionism, the law does a great violence in some ways, those broader, you know, deeper aspects of what's true. And that's very useful because again, people walk out of the room with an answer, but you make a grave mistake if you mistake that for the whole story. And a former professor of mine always used to say to us that real life is not a courtroom. And we had to remember that the real world was so much more multifarious yeah. than the things and that real life accept. is real life is not a document either. Mm. You know, we can talk about the documentary record. It's hugely important. But documentary records are about what survived, what was left behind, what was deliberately uh, left behind. Sometimes there are important links in the chain that have been omitted or deliberately uh, destroyed or suppressed. Um, so it's not just about, you know, the documents that are there, but it's also about what's passed down in an oral tradition. I mean, we have a very important uh, folklore collection in this country, mm. um, and it's, it's hugely impressive in international terms what was done from the 1920s onwards through the Irish Folklore Commission. You know, before it was formally established in the 1930s, there were people behind the scenes conscious, we have to capture the testimonies, the stories, the ways of lives, the customs. Um, it became something very important. But it's folklore. Does that mean it's the enemy of history? No, it doesn't. It means it's a people's history. It means it's an oral tradition. Um, and you'll often get a very different kind of experience 
uh, from material in the Folklore Commission, stuff that you won't find uh, in, in the documented record uh, or in the formal uh, archival setting. And coming up to the 100th anniversary of the Great Irish Famine in the mid-1940s, Eamon de Valera was Taoiseach, and he wanted a, a history of the famine to be written that would approximate to the kind of stories he had heard from his mother's people in Limerick when he was a child, because there was still a memory, a direct memory there of the famine years. But what he got instead when he commissioned this book from the academic historians, which was quite a dry administrative history of the famine, because they were the sources that they were comfortable working with. They were the sources that they trusted. So that kind of human element mm. uh, that you're talking about, uh, that you have to remember that human experience, it was very difficult to stitch that into historical studies of the famine because some people were sceptical of, of the idea of these, these stories being passed down. Yes, and how do you verify them? And something that's been in the news recently, which has been a controversy involving law and history and, yeah. and so much else, has been the Mother and Baby Homes Commission. And something that, that struck me was that one of the, the problems that, that we saw with that commission's report is the fact that perhaps its, its terms of reference were quite legalistic to start with and then maybe were interpreted in an even more legalistic way. And the inquiry became very much about fairness to certain people who were seen as under investigation, certain groups that were seen as under investigation. And the problem with thinking very legally is fairness in law is all about the fairness of the person who is kind of being looked into, yeah. right? There's no idea of what law is doing in terms of fairness on the other side, like what sort of society is being made, what's fairness out there. And there again might be a reason for that in a courtroom. The idea of innocent until proven guilty is a very useful standard to make a fair system of criminal law. It's not a useful standard for life. You don't wait to make judgments until you have definitive proof or you never make them. And what's the historical sort of you know, angle on that in terms of trying to verify stories and trying to do justice to human experience in those projects? This has been an enormous challenge and it, you know, it's been evident in a variety of different commissions. The different revelations that I talked about from the 1990s ultimately culminated, of course, in the States of Fear, States of Fear investigation. And then you had the Commission to inquire um, into child abuse, the residential institutions. Over 200 institutions, 216 institutions ultimately covered by the Ryan report. Um, and, you know, is that, what kind of a process is that? What does it mean for people to give testimony? You will often hear uh, former inmates of these institutions talk about the need for truth. They're not interested uh, in, in money. Uh, they're interested in being heard, the truth being heard. But of course, as we know, establishing the truth is very, very complicated. Uh, and we've had a whole series of investigations. We've had the McAleese report into the Magdalene Laundries. We had the earlier Yvonne Murphy report into the um, Catholic, uh, or the Catholic Arch Archdiocese of Dublin and, and uh, allegations of clerical abuse there. Uh, and then, of course, we've had most recently the mother and baby home. One of the difficulties, and it has been articulated, uh, by those involved in the institution is that uh, they have to stick to their terms of reference, reference that there are certain limitations on them. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly you're not going to be able um, to conduct an investigation and author a report that will please everybody. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have to be able to get involved in a process and a report that will not uh, distress so many people. Uh, and this is the crucial question about what premium is placed on individual women's testimonies. Mm. You know, can they stand themselves as those women's experiences? Uh, this is not about proving 
the veracity uh, or the you know the legal um, uh, truth uh, in, insofar as it can be established. This is about them getting an opportunity to articulate uh, their experiences. And again, we have to be conscious of all the other issues that we discussed in relation to the passage of time uh, and memory. But it, there has to be a sensitivity to the idea that one of the prime missions is not a legalistic mission. Mm. It's an opportunity for people to articulate their experiences. I would much have preferred that testimony to be recorded and collected as it's, and let it stand unvarnished um, so that there is a record of what these women said. And it's not about, you know, proving um, their uh, assertions to a particular legal standard. It's about allowing those voices to breathe instead of them, um, perhaps bits of them finding their way into different uh, parts of the report and none really being uh, ultimately satisfactory in communicating the enormity of what happened to the women and what they experienced. And I think it's, it's something that often seems elusive when people go to court as well and people talk a lot about seeking justice and the idea that that's what you go to court for. And the problem maybe is the word justice is as complicated as the word truth in terms of what you mean by it and what I mean by it might be different. And the court might do justice by its lights, but not at all by that person's lights because they want a form of vindication that the court's not in its narrow process able to give. Do you think that people would be better in some ways seeking justice from the historical records, from you know, what's put down in, in those, I hesitate to say definitive, but purportedly definitive accounts? Is that a better place sometimes to seek justice? I think it is, it is sometimes uh, for the nuance that you will get, you know, for, for the range of voices that you will get. And there was a period in Irish... Uh, society from the 1990s onwards. I remember going into a bookshop in Dublin and there was a shelf that had a label, Painful Lives, you know, and it was also all about the airing of these uh, painful lives. It was very cathartic for many people. It was re-traumatising uh, for other people. Uh, and other people, of course, uh, just wanted perhaps to uh, develop um, or, or magnify uh, certain inc incidents uh, or certain experiences. There were a whole variety uh, of different testimonies. But that perhaps is, is where the value lies. Mm -hmm. It's not about us trying to find a definitive version. It's about trying to find, I think, a lot of the time, common strands uh, so that we can mediate, um, we can mediate those different uh, experiences and try and come to some kind um, of uh, analytical frame of mind, not to reach definitive conclusions, because there's no such thing, uh, but that you would just get that sense that you won't get, I suppose, in a strictly legal way. Mm. You just get that sense uh, of, of variety, that you'll get that sense of these women in particular and children, they had certain things in common, particularly in relation to institutionalization and the experience of institutionalization, but within their individual stories within their individual uh, family lives, within their individual uh, community experiences. You have layer upon layer upon layer. And it really is like peeling an onion. Um, and you know, that, you know, you never get uh, to the essence of it. You just have to keep um, searching. Mm. Uh, and in doing so, we build over the decades a very, very substantial uh, body of material. It can be overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, one of the big pieces of the archival jigsaw that remained uh, in relation to the revolutionary period were the military service pension files, which are gargantuan mm. uh, in archival terms. These were people who applied for pensions, men and women, based on their War of Independence and Civil War uh, service. Uh, many of the files follow the whole lives uh, of the individual. 
And again, what you begin uh, to realize is not just the sense on the part of many of them of betrayal and humiliation and, you know, the, um, the dampening of the, the idealism. Um, what you also begin to appreciate is that there are so many Irish revolutionary experiences, mm. you know, that we have only been scratching the surface. You know, when we talk about the narrative, the narrative of, and we're, you know, we're in the middle of a decade of centenaries and remembering and reflections, you know, that we're beginning to discover now that we haven't gotten near the full extent or trauma and the afterlives and the legacies. And that's a very important part of this conversation. You know, what is suppressed? What mm. memories are suppressed? You know, some historians conclude that memory is ultimately an enemy uh, of history. It, it's not. Mm. Uh, but you do have to distinguish uh, between the two of them because as Richard White, an Irish-American historian, has put it, history can actually forge weapons from what the memory has suppressed mm. or forgotten. But then there are certain places that only the memory can go. So there's value in both of them. And is there another way of putting this maybe that there's just different approaches to coping with uncertainty and the law copes very badly with it because it needs to give answers so it picks defaults. If you don't prove this, then nothing happens, right? And so therefore, by implication, it's not true or it's not the case or whatever. Whereas obviously, by its nature, history requires that sort of multiplicity of meanings. And something I'm wondering is how history copes with the overturning of sort of established sort of conventional truth, because something that the law has really struggled with in recent years is an overturning of a lot of certainties about certain kinds of evidence, forensic evidence around fingerprints, around uh, gunshot residue, around fires. The people thought was good as gold in terms of evidential quality has been shown to be highly subjective and deeply problematic. And people went to prison for a very long time on foot of some of that evidence. So that's been a real you know, shaking of the foundations because some of the things we thought we could really rely on, it turns out we couldn't. Yeah. Because historians are more used to that ambiguity, maybe you have to embrace it as part of the disciplinary tool set. When something comes along to upturn understanding, is that more readily accepted or does it still oh, it, struggle? It, it, it can cause a lot of tension still. You know, how far do you go with your reinterpretation? You know, you'd often say to students, what year was that book published and how relevant is that? What was available to that person at that mm. point? You know, revisionism uh, took on a certain political meaning and became a pejorative term uh, in some respects as a result of the, the, the troubled state of the land, particularly in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, but revisionism in its true sense is what historians are always supposed to be doing because mm. we're looking at the availability uh, of new evidence. It cannot possibly uh, be static. And we have to revisit uh, assumptions all of the time. And we also have to be conscious that we ourselves as historians are products of our environment. We can't stand completely removed from it. You know, we construct certain paradigms or certain frameworks of interpretation at different points uh, to suit our contemporary needs. And even if we claim that we're aiming for a degree of, of, of detachment, you know, we can't step outside uh, of that completely. You know, so we are to a certain extent following fashion, mm. <laughs> you know, and, and that combined, of course, with the availability of new material can create uh, exciting new history. Uh, but sometimes there are those who, uh, you know, would be worried about the dismissal of a previous interpretation. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be about a dismissal. It should be about building. Mm. It should again be about nuance as opposed to having to completely replace something. 
I think in, in many ways, the legal world is similar insofar as we have an interpretive community, a group of people who decide to approach tasks a certain way, agree for the time being that this is good evidence. And again, it can be overturned and time has overturned many of these yeah. things. But the change certainly comes very slowly. And I'm sure to some degree it's the same, that there must be disciplinary disputes about these shifts in paradigm. And if they happen too fast, presumably some people are left behind to some degree. Yeah. But whether it's law or history, there also has to be a very strong philosophical underpinning. You know, what are we about ultimately, whether Sense we're lawyers purpose. or historians? Like, what is our purpose? You know, and I mean, those things, um, they're not supposed uh, to be changing every five or ten years. You know, we are supposed to be um, signed up to a particular mission, which is to try and so far as we can uh, to find all the available evidence and, and, and to evaluate it. Uh, you know, there is a philosophical uh, framework around that. There is arguably a moral uh, framework mm. about that. There were often debates about whether history is a science or an art uh, as well. Uh, and it has to be both yeah. because you can go about your business as a historian in quite a scientific way in terms of your chasing uh, of evidence, but you can be very creative mm. uh, and artistic in how you present history, how you communicate history. And I think that, I wonder if you'd agree with this characterization. I always think that the most important thing to get across to students in law is that you have to cope with uncertainty. Be modest about what you know, but don't let uncertainty paralyze you because the certainty is not coming. And so if there's things that need to be done, if there's work that needs doing, we have to act on what we know now. We can't wait for that golden era where everything will be clear, nothing will need interpretation, because it hasn't come yet and it probably won't. I'd say that's similar for you. You will end up as a historian, as I suspect you will end up as a lawyer, asking more questions than you answer. That has to be the nature of historical inquiry and the nature of legal inquiry. It's different, as you mentioned earlier on, and that verdicts, ha verdicts have to be reached. Uh, but in relation to uh, historical inquiry, you know, that has to be much more open-ended. Thanks so much, Dermot. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much to Dermot Ferreter for joining David Kenny for that stimulating conversation at the National Gallery of Ireland. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge. <laughs>